This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Tonight I'm going to talk about something that people think philosophers talk about all the time, but which philosophers actually don't talk about very much, at least not nowadays. That's the question of what life is all about. I will first sketch out a possible answer to that question that is very commonly accepted in our society, even if no one formulates it explicitly. Second, I will sketch out a key competitor to that view. This competitor is roughly the view proposed by the ancient Greek philosopher Aristotle. Third, I will complicate things a bit by drawing on the Catholic theological and spiritual tradition to raise questions about the Aristotelian answer. In the end, I won't claim to have settled the question of what life is all about. That's way too much for a 40 minute talk. But perhaps I will have made it clearer what the issues are and what a good solution might look like. First then, there's a certain attitude towards life that I think is now quite common in our society. I call it feelings management. According to feelings management, the task of living consists in managing your feelings so that on balance, they are as positive as they can be. I have chosen the word feelings on purpose to cover not only emotions, but also physical sensations. Feelings management is concerned with both. In fact, figuring out how they are related is a crucial task for feelings management. For example, running a marathon is pretty unpleasant, but having run a marathon gives you a sense of accomplishment, bragging rights, and so forth. For some people, the negative sensations of pain and fatigue and running the race just don't outweigh the positive emotions at the end, while for others, they do. And of course, you don't just have to balance physical sensations against emotions. You also have to balance physical sensations against other physical sensations and emotions against other emotions. It's very complicated. Feelings management is somehow about juggling your physical sensations and your emotions in such a way that overall you end up feeling as good as possible. I think that for a lot of people, trying to live a good life means being a good feelings manager. You try to avoid feeling physical pain, but perhaps a little physical pain is a price worth paying for the sake of being healthier. You enjoy your successes, but you avoid gloating about them because when others feel bad in comparison, you end up feeling guilty. You try to avoid feeling guilty, but maybe a little bit of guilt helps spur you on to achieve something satisfying. The ultimate test, however, throughout is how you feel. Perhaps here I should insert a clarification. Sometimes the way something feels to you is a legitimate factor to consider. For me, wearing a size eight shoe would hurt quite a lot. And that's a pretty good reason for me to wear a different size. 
if you need to relax by doing something fun, you should pick something that actually is fun, something that is fun for you. So when I talk about feelings management, I don't mean the mere fact of sometimes basing decisions on our feelings. I don't mean picking ice cream flavors based on what you like and what you don't like. What I mean by feelings management is treating all of life as if it were a trip to the ice cream store. Feelings management is when we view the whole of life solely through the lens of how it makes us feel. Now notice when I first gave the example of running a marathon, I noticed that running a marathon seems to be a good choice for some feelings managers, but a bad choice for others. What works for you might not work for me because not everyone feels the same way about everything. So to the extent that we think about life using the principles of feelings management, to that extent, we will lean towards relativism. That is towards the view that there isn't an absolute standard of what makes actions good or bad or of what makes a life good or bad. If decisions and life choices are supposed to be made on the basis of how they make us feel, then there's no reason to expect there to be moral standards that hold for everyone. Even if there are standards that hold for most people most of the time, in as much as those standards lead to good feelings for most people most of the time, it seems plausible, it seems plausible that there will be a few people out there for whom deviating from those standards will feel pretty great. Most of us don't like torturing cats, but maybe it's a real thrill for that rare person. This I will mention is in passing would seem to be a weakness in the moral thinking of one of philosophy's most prominent feelings managers, David Hume, who seems not to have worried much about the possibility that acting for, for pleasure might lead some people to seriously base actions. It's not merely that feelings management as a life strategy seems to entail moral relativism as a matter of logic. It's also that feelings management makes moral relativism attractive and desirable. If a certain moral principle is too challenging, if I keep failing and feeling guilty, or if adhering to it means I have to miss out on pleasures I'm unwilling to give up, then I can just say that that moral principle isn't true for me. Moral relativism is great for minimizing and even eliminating guilt, which is a very unpleasant feeling. If on the other hand, I like behaving in a certain way, then maybe I will decide that this way of acting is right for me. Once I've decided that, I will feel even better about that kind of action and I will be more likely to persist in doing it. So moral relativism is attractive. I have described feelings management as an approach to life and I have claimed that it goes well with moral relativism. Let me now add that it goes well with other kinds of relativism. Sometimes people say things like this, Maybe God exists for you, but he doesn't exist for me. There's something extremely bizarre about such statements. 
if the word God is being used correctly here, then it's extremely difficult to see how God's existence or non-existence could vary from person to person. Whether God exists or doesn't exist, surely it's the same for everyone. Nonetheless, people do say things like that. Why? Here's my suggestion. Thoughts about God affect some people's feelings in a pretty strong way, sometimes positively, sometimes negatively. That makes thoughts about God prime candidates for feelings management. Perhaps some people use God and religion in general as part of their toolkit for feelings management. Believing in God, praying, and engaging in certain religious rituals gives certain people a sense of mission, a sense of consolation, and so forth. Other people, by contrast, find religion really stressful. It's boring, and when it's not boring, it's threatening. For these people, God and religion are not help helpful parts of a toolkit for feelings management. So when people say, God exists for me, maybe what they mean is that believing in God is helpful as part of their strategy for feelings management. And when people say God doesn't exist for me, maybe what they mean is that believing in God is not helpful to them as part of their strategy for feelings management. Maybe they even mean that disbelieving in God is helpful for them. The point I'm getting at here is that feelings management fits well, not just with moral relativism, but also with relativism about the very nature of reality. Relativism about what exists and what doesn't exist. I've given the example of belief in God, but it's not the only thing that this might apply to. Consider the question of whether there is a fixed human nature. Some people find this helpful, so they say it's true for them, while others don't, so they say it's not true for them. If this is right, then it's interesting to note that somehow, for feelings managers, you don't believe things because you think they're true. You believe things because doing so helps you feel better. Different things give different people different feelings, and so we end up in a further and deeper kind of relativism a relativism not just about right and wrong, but about how the world is. I presume you can tell that I'm not a big fan of relativism or of feelings management. If I had a lot of time, maybe I could lay out some reasons for rejecting them. Not that it would be particularly easy. Deep philosophical issues are very hard to argue about. Usually the way you try to settle a dispute is by appealing to a deeper principle. For example, you can sometimes settle a dispute in engineering by appealing to some principle of physics or chemistry. But in philosophy, pretty much by definition, you are trying to get as close to the foundations as you can. At a certain point, you can't appeal to principles any deeper than the ones that you are considering because you've already hit the foundation. This doesn't mean that there's no truth about the matter, and it doesn't mean that the truth can't be discovered, but it does mean that making progress is very difficult. I think we're now close to being at that sort of point. So instead of arguing against relativism and feelings management, I'm just going to set them aside and move in a different direction. I'm going to take it as granted that there is something implausible about them, 
and I'm going to explore alternatives. The first, which you could call the human flourishing view, is pretty much the view found in Aristotle. The basic idea is this. For every type of living organism, there are things that count as doing well and other things <clears throat> that count as not doing well. The philosopher Philip Foote called this natural goodness. If you're a squirrel, then these are some things that belong to doing well. Having all four legs, not being eaten by a hawk, gathering a lot of nuts, making baby squirrels. Relativism makes no sense for talking about squirrels. Having only three legs is bad for a squirrel. And so is being eaten by a hawk. Failing to gather nuts is bad. And so is going baby squirrel-less. Now, of course, there are complications here. For example, losing a leg is bad for a squirrel, but it might be a legitimate price to pay for something else, such as escaping from a trap. For our purposes here, going into these sort of details isn't necessary. What's important to focus on is that there are good and bad ways for squirrel lives to go. Squirrels can flourish and they can fail to flourish. Flourishing is good and not flourishing is bad. Well, human beings are living organisms too. And so not just for squirrels, but also for us. There's a difference between what counts as flourishing and what doesn't. As with squirrels, relativism doesn't make good sense. Having the right number of legs is good for us. Being struck by a car is not. So far, that sounds a lot like squirrels. But with humans, there's also a difference because we have reason and free will. So for humans, flourishing means not just having good things happen to us and not just doing things properly by instinct, the way a squirrel gathers nuts, but also and especially making good decisions and using our reason well. So a flourishing human life is a life in which humans use reason well in order to make intelligent choices that promote the flourishing of our kind of organism. Eating well, getting exercise, raising our children, being true to our friends, all of these contribute to human life going well. Further, since we can choose these things through reason and free will, we are responsible for what happens in a way that squirrels can't be. And therefore it makes sense to speak in terms of praise and blame, moral goodness and badness. Aristotle has a word for the life lived well, eudaimonia, which can be translated as happiness or blessedness. He defines it as the activity of the soul according to virtue throughout a whole life. It's not merely the capacity for living and acting, but the actualization of that capacity. It's not just any old way of living and acting, but living and acting according to virtue or excellently, <clears throat> which for humans means according to reason. And it's not just having a good day, but something that characterizes a whole life or as much of it as possible. Given that we started with feelings management, it seems appropriate to say something about Aristotle's view on what a good life feels like. For Aristotle, 
it's pleasurable to use our powers and it's more pleasurable to use them well and it's more pleasurable still to use them on the best objects. It's fun to look at things. It's more fun to look at them carefully and it's funnest when the things we're looking at are beautiful. So generally speaking, good activities are enjoyable activities. <clears throat> if life is in a sense, a big complex activity, then a life lived well will be a pleasurable life. And this is what Aristotle says. So while pleasure doesn't show up in his official definition of happiness, nonetheless, he holds that pleasure emerges from excellent activity as its normal completion. A life that is happy or blessed in this sense will be an enjoyable one, unless perhaps some horrible events happen to mar our happiness, which does happen. A good life feels good, but that doesn't mean for Aristotle that everything that feels good is good. He wouldn't say, as we sometimes do, that your feelings are your feelings, as if that settles things. He says, rather, that we need to be taught to feel pleasure and pain in the right way, for the right things. And he says that if we take pleasure in bad things, then that pleasure is bad. This might suggest that someone could live a very enjoyable life while being a bad person. But I think that's not really Aristotle's view. In the short run, sure, we can enjoy bad actions. But in the long run, the inner contradictions between our actions and our nature as humans will emerge. Aristotle says that in the long run, a bad person does not enjoy his life. He doesn't like the kind of person he has become. And he is, so to speak, unable to be a friend to himself. It's as if he can't stand his own company. From Aristotle's point of view, then, the point of life is to live in a way that best actualizes human nature. Morality is a matter of flourishing. Good actions are those in which we succeed in actualizing ourselves in the right way. Bad actions are those in which we fail to actualize ourselves in the right way those in which we fail to flourish, whether through harming others or through harming ourselves or usually both. A good life will be pleasant for the person living it and a bad life will be unpleasant for the person living it. If Aristotle is right, then feelings management is the wrong approach. The goal of life isn't to feel good. The goal of life is to live well in the long run, the feeling good part will probably take care of itself, but it's not what we should be aiming for. Interestingly, this seems to line up, to some extent anyway, with what psychologists nowadays call the paradox of pleasure. People who aim at pleasure often miss it, while people who aim at doing things well have a pretty good time. That's a rough look at Aristotle's view of what life is all about. It's not about managing our feelings, but about living excellently. I think this view makes a lot of sense. It connects to our nature as living organisms. And at the same time, it highlights what is distinctively human, namely reason. 
It makes clear why living for pleasure is beneath us, and yet it, it finds an appropriate place for pleasure. Nevertheless, I think it has to be said that from the Christian point of view, this Aristotelian vision is incomplete. According to Christianity, we can, by God's free gift of grace, live a higher kind of life than the one Aristotle envisions. Supernatural infusion of a divine gift makes it possible for us to live on a supernatural plane, to love God above all things, and to love things other than God insofar as they are in accord with God's will for us, and thereby ultimately to live in a way that is worthy in God's sight. This is emphatically not a case of natural goodness, but of supernatural goodness. It's brought about by divine grace acting on our nature, healing it from sin and raising it up. Now, exploring the, explaining the relation between the goodness of our nature and the goodness we receive through grace is a very tricky task. It's one of the toughest theological problems, and a lot of disputes have risen over it. For our purposes here, I think it's adequate to just keep our eye on the idea that whatever the precise relation between nature and grace is, the natural actualization of our natural capacities isn't enough for true and full human fulfillment. Let me say that again. From the Christian standpoint, living according to natural goodness isn't good enough. What counts as the best way to live will look different for Christians. The good life, as imagined by David Hume, that poor man, or even Aristotle, will be different from the good life as imagined by Aquinas or other Christians. But different how? One way of thinking about it might be as follows. Philosophical ethics discovers the proper form of human natural goodness, and Christianity adds on some extras, stuff about prayer and worship and so on. In other words, this way of thinking says that supernatural goodness takes natural goodness as it is and then adds some supernatural stuff to it. But another way of thinking, more radical perhaps, would say that human natural goodness is, at least to some extent, in tension with supernatural goodness. So that if we want to attain to supernatural goodness, we have to give up on some natural goodness in favor of something even better. It's not an easy question. But whether or not Christianity's vision of a supernatural spiritual life is in tension with a true and perfectly correct understanding of human natural goodness. Christianity's vision is certainly in tension with the understanding of human natural goodness that people usually have, even if in some theoretical sense, the gospel isn't in tension with philosophical ethics it's certainly going to be in tension with ethics as they are commonly understood. The gospel always challenges us on questions of sex, on questions of material wealth and consumption, on questions having to do with the use of force, and on and on. If our society's instincts 
match those of the gospel in some respect. In some respects, they will fail to match it in others. Given our fallen nature, we should feel confident that without the guidance of Christian teaching, we will get at least some things wrong. Now let's talk about feelings again. First, if our views about what is good and bad in human life are likely to be off target. Sorry, if our views about what is good and bad in human life are likely to be off target, unless we have correction from the gospel, then so presumably will our feelings be likely to be off target as well. Aristotle was more right than he knew when he said, as mentioned earlier, that we learn that we need to learn to feel pleasure and pain in the right way. Think of how in the sermon, think of how in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you salute only your brethren, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? I find it hard to escape the thought that Christ here is talking not merely about showing love to enemies on the level of outward action, but also about feeling well disposed towards them, even if we should still hate their actions. He's talking, I think, about re-educating our feelings away from what seems natural and normal to human beings to something that is more divine. Indeed, the very next verse is, verse 48, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. And let's face it, a re-education of our feelings won't be fun or easy. We'll have to learn to stop enjoying some things we currently enjoy and to enjoy things that we currently don't enjoy or at least put up with them. This business about loving our enemies is only one example. The gospel might call us to take less enjoyment in consumer goods or to walk away from certain kinds of sexual relations or simply to focus less on that person we all find so incredibly fascinating, namely oneself. Coming to live in a Christian way <clears throat> will surely bring joy in the long run, but there's no special reason to think that it will always be fun in the short run. These are good thoughts for Lent, aren't they? <clears throat> now, I want to make a second remark about feelings. This one is tougher to get right, and it leads into deep waters. I certainly don't speak with confidence. But anyway, here goes. In the Christian tradition, <clears throat> there's an important role given not only to joy, but also to suffering and also an important role given to something that is neither suffering nor rejoicing, but just plain blahness. Dryness or aridity is what it's usually called. 
in spite of what Aristotle says about the way in which pleasure naturally follows upon virtuous activity. It seems to be part of the Christian spiritual tradition to say that suffering or aridity can play a role in our growing closer to God. Consider the fact that we all have attachments to created things and that sometimes these attachments are inappropriate. We tend to love things regardless of whether God wants us to. That's a problem in itself, and it creates the danger that sometimes we'll love things even when God wants us not to. The world is good and beautiful, but it's also a kind of trap. Like children on their birthday, we sometimes love the gifts more than the giver. So when things we used to enjoy become flat and uninspiring, or when life hits a crisis and we go through a period of suffering, this can be an opportunity for God to wean us from these attachments. It's a chance for us to learn how to live and act more purely for God alone. For example, maybe prayer or serving one's neighbor used to result in excitement or joy, but now it doesn't so much anymore. We might be tempted to stay here Ah, I'm losing my faith. I don't love God anymore. But that only makes sense if the true test is how we feel. Maybe it isn't the true test. Instead of giving up, we can keep praying, keep serving others, and so forth, now in a more disinterested way, like with less concern for what we get out of it. Whereas before, we might have been motivated, at least in part, by the pleasure we get from prayer and service. The fact that the pleasure has faded gives us a chance to go deeper, deeper than feelings. Of course, it's reasonable to hope that joy will return later in a deeper way. And this up and down process might happen any number of times. But the point is that again, one comes through God's grace to operate on a level deeper than feelings, Desire for God isn't necessarily the same as having warm, positive feelings towards God. True desire can carry on even when we just aren't feeling it. If this is right, then the relation between feeling good and living well is more complicated than Aristotle saw. Difficult times, times of dryness or suffering, might not mean that anything is going wrong. Maybe it's a chance to learn how to love God in a less self-centered way. Let me add that when this is happening, God has not abandoned us, even if it sometimes might feel like that. God is still supporting us, and we can be supremely confident that he will continue to give us the graces and consolations we need to remain faithful to our calling. If we remain true in prayer and service, God won't leave us behind. This question about how we feel about God can be looked at from another perspective. God is not just another being in the world whom we can perceive with our senses or grasp with our mind. He is utterly transcendent, totally over the horizon in the deepest sense possible. When we feel excitement or consolation in prayer or service, that might lead us to think that God is part of the world just another being that we can come to terms with. 
if falling into this danger, if, if falling into this error is a danger for us, then it might be good for us if he somehow withdraws from us or hides from us. Perhaps a way, perhaps that's a way for him to reveal to us just how different he is and also a way for him to provoke us into pursuing him more ardently. This point has been emphasized by the writer Donald Haggerty, a priest of the Archdiocese of New York who has had a long association with Mother Teresa's order. Father Haggerty says that when Jesus was a boy, hide and seek must have been his favorite game. As you may know, Mother Teresa herself went through long periods of feeling abandoned by God. Throughout, she stayed faithful in prayer, and also she stayed faithful in extremely generous works of charity. All of this is not easy to understand or to accept. That's especially the case for us today, I think. We live in a society whose dominant model of life is feelings management, a model on which times of dryness and suffering are just to be avoided. What's more, we live in a society which is designed to keep us constantly stimulated. In fact, most people now carry in their pockets a very complicated high-tech device whose main purpose is to get them to focus on enjoyable trivialities. Maybe we need to put the phone away and spend more time with others face to face. Even more importantly, maybe we need to spend more time alone in silent prayer. If we do this, we'll quickly come face to face with boredom and other unpleasant things. But maybe that's good. Maybe we need to find out what Augustine taught us, that our hearts are restless until they rest in God. Thank you.